America's original and oldest heritage pack company, Duluth Pack, hosts a podcast led by CEO Tom Sega. Real stories with real people who we admire, plus outdoor industry conversations, business discussions, entrepreneurial advice, and more. Now enjoy this week's episode of Leader of the Pack. Hey, everybody, this is Tom Sega from Duluth Pack, and this is the Duluth Pack podcast, Leader of the Pack. Our special guest today is Jim Vanosky, Forbes contributor and host of Manufacturing Talks podcast. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. Great to see you again. It's great to see you. And, and Jim has really become a friend of ours, and we've gotten to know him over the last couple of years. And so this will be a, a lot of fun today because, you know, when you when you know somebody and and uh, you know their passions, it just sure makes this easy and makes it a heck of a lot of fun. So, Jim, let's start at the beginning. You, you obviously worked 30 years in industry. We're going to talk all about that. But tell us a little about Jim Vanosky, where you grew up, went to school, all of those great things. Sure thing. Yeah. So uh, where I grew up is not far from where you are now, 100 miles away in Ironwood, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, right there on the border of Wisconsin. So, yeah, the house I grew up in was like a mile from the Wisconsin border. A lot of people don't even realize that's part of Michigan up there as not as close to the lake as you are, about 18 miles off Lake Superior and you know, out in the boonies. So youpers. I was a youper. Um, my dad worked in the forest industry, he was with the US Forest Service his whole career. So we were out in the outdoors all the time and doing all the fun stuff up there in the Michigan wilds. So so all the people that are listening, tell people in that part of the world how much snow you actually do get because you're in the snow belt of the great lakes right. and and i mean beautiful skiing area beautiful snowmobiling area beautiful snowshoeing area for people who absolutely love winter tell people how much <laughs> snow you actually get because it's mind-boggling yeah and it was even more mind-boggling when i was growing up the winters were a little tougher uh, it was an average of 200 inches a year there in Ironwood. And, you know, the snow would start falling typically in October. Um, it would definitely be, you know, everyone was praying for it to be on the ground thick by Thanksgiving. So the ski hills would do well early in the season. And then, you know, my birthday is April 24th. And there's many birthdays I remember there still being snow on the ground. That's crazy because people who aren't used to the snow, and we have we have people who listen to the podcast from areas where they get no snow. Right. We're talking about up to 17 feet of snow a year. Yep. And and tunnels, I mean, literal tunnels where people are snow blowing out of the house, and you'll see where they'll put plywood over it so they don't have to snow blow the sidewalks anymore once it gets above their heads. Yeah. We're talking about large snow banks and 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 really cool country and beautifully white, all just pristine white all winter. It's a, a great place if you like winter, if you like winter sports, which I did I, interestingly i was never a skier and that's one of the premier kind of midwestern ski areas but um i did cross-country skiing snowshoeing um just we'd do hikes in the winter we got our own christmas tree so yeah the winter wonderland for sure oh it's it's uh great stuff yep so you went to school there then tell us about college yeah um so that's an interesting story, too, because I went to college in Memphis, Tennessee. So to give you the quick background there, 
when I went to grade school and high school, it was at Ironwood Catholic schools, which, mm-hmm. as you might imagine, in a small, uh, remote town, the Catholic schools not real big. I think my graduating class in high school was 19, if I remember correctly. I'm assuming you knew everybody in your graduating class. <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> um, and so the priest of our parish was also the guidance counselor for our school, and he had grown up with a guy in the Twin Cities who became Brother Theodore Drummond, president of Christian Brothers University in Memphis. And so knowing that, uh, you know, we were in this small school in a small town, it was actually my next older brother before me, he was going into electrical engineering and this priest knew the school down in Memphis, knew it had a good engineering program. So he said, look, you know, it's a small school. It gets you somewhere different. So you get to experience some different things, but it keeps you in a small setting. So it's not so overwhelming. Like if you went to, you know, Michigan state or something like that. And so my brother looked at it, liked it. He went down there two years later and did the same talk with me and I was going into mechanical engineering. So off to Memphis, I went. Wow. It's big change for winter down Very, there. Uh, right. <laughs> well, even probably a bigger change in the summer for you. No, so that's the truth. So you went into engineering. Yep. You graduate college. What's next? Yeah. So I went into engineering in part because I had already gotten into serious bicycling when I was, uh, I mean, I think I started in my early teens. Now up there, there was no racing. Um, I was really the only one who knew about such things in Ironwood at the time, but I got into, you know, some high-end bicycles and being not from a wealthy background, got into also doing all my own maintenance and things like that really uh, took a liking to the mechanical end of things. That's actually part of why I went into mechanical engineering. And it's what I was thinking is, is, you know, getting into something like that coming out. As I went through school, then I realized, you know, manufacturing is this huge uh, place with all kinds of cool things going on. So when I graduated, I just interviewed with all the companies that I could find that were kind of down in the area. I wound up going into chemicals for my first job. So I went down farther south into rural Mississippi and went to work for a chemical company down there. Really? So what were you doing for them? Uh, Project engineer. And so it was installing new capital projects, whether it's new equipment or additions to existing equipment. And, you know, this was a big place with outdoor reaction units, um, you know, stuff I'd never even imagined before in my life making PVC. And so it's this reactive process in these big, huge batch reactors um, with big, huge pumps and heat exchangers and all these uh, control systems at random. And so just learning that whole, you know, chemical industrial world, it was uh, definitely a continuation of the schooling. Let's put it that way. Sure. I bet you that was quite the learning curve. So, oh, yeah. so, and, and, and so I know you were in the plastic and then you were also in paint industry. Was this with the same company then were that or a different division because of chemicals or? It wasn't. Um, I wound up working in chemicals for four years, uh, you know, even though I was from a rural background myself, I really, having had that time in Memphis, wanted to go and uh, have a little more opportunity for, you know, some active lifestyle and uh, wound up moving back to Memphis and went to work for uh, 
paints and coatings company just outside Memphis. And so you were back in Memphis. And how long were you doing that? Um, not very long. They brought me on also to do projects, and it was it was uh, kind of built around this new system that they intended to install. Pretty high dollar project. Not long after I got there, the project was canceled because they were owned by a company called Kodak. They got into some money trouble. And so the capital went away. I did some things, some smaller things for about a year and a half, but just wasn't the challenge I was looking for. So um, went to another Memphis company. And that's really where I started more into the food end of things. It was a food ingredients company. So who was that? Uh, it's called Protein Technologies. It was part of Ralston Purina at the time. Okay. And so you were in the 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 ingredient part of the food industry? Yeah, yeah. So we did um, soy protein. Okay. Processed um, you know, soybean uh, flour, basically, and extracted the protein and made this uh, purified uh, series of purified protein powders for food and beverage. And then this was sold to multiple industries? How, how does oh, yeah. that work then? Yeah. So it was any food company that was formulating with that soy protein, we would be a supplier to them. It w- give us an idea of what kind of, of foodstuffs would take a soy protein like that. So it could be anything from baby food to um, meat substitutes to energy drinks, you know, protein and how, drinks. And how long were you involved in doing that? About four years there too. Okay. And now the, the one that really intrigues me is bourbon. Yeah, well, that that was a lot of years later. That was that was um, actually my my role previous to what I'm doing now, and you know, I spent a good number of years in between at General Mills. That's about half my career. Okay. And so I jumped from food ingredients to food and beverage proper, um, kind of split my time, and it was almost 16 years with General Mills, um, about evenly split between uh, YoPlay yogurt and then Big G cereals. Okay, big, big Midwestern company. Oh, yeah, yep. And in fact, my first role with them was back up in Michigan, uh, not too far from where I live now, uh, yogurt plant in Reed City, Michigan. So almost like going home, even though it's quite a distance from where I live there to where I grew up. Sure. But and yeah, then, so... And then you had this bourbon thing. I'm interested in right. this. So, um, you know, I worked my way up through the ranks at General Mills and reached a point where... Um, wanted something more and wasn't getting it and decided to do something different and started casting the net. Um, I mentioned that first role in Reed City, Michigan, one of my best friends that I kept up with, even though we parted ways fairly quickly within the first couple of years, I was with the company. He went one direction and I went in another, but he had left the company a few years before and was uh, one of the executives at this alcohol company that is uh, actually headquartered in Atchison, Kansas, that had just bought a huge former Seagram's plant in Southeast Indiana, right outside Cincinnati, and knew he wanted someone to come in and run that for him. So uh, he knew I was looking and he gave me a call one day and said, why don't you meet me down in Cincinnati and we'll go take a look at this place and see if you want to run it. I did and one thing led to another and off I went to make bourbon. So, so tell us about making bourbon. I selfishly am just interested in, in what goes into making bourbon. 
Yeah, so fortunately, while I had no experience in the alcohol world, you know, professionally, I was a home brewer for a few years, right around the time I moved to Memphis. And that's how you start. Um, you know, obviously beer, you're using primarily uh, barley, but to make bourbon, you're using corn. And so you ferment a corn mixture and you get, it's beer, it's not any beer you'd want to drink by itself, but you're making a beer and then you um, put that through distillation processes to purify, pull out the alcohol. And then you put the alcohol in these particular barrels, very specific, has to be a white oak barrel, charred. Um, and yeah, then you store the barrel in a warehouse for several years, you know, five, six, however many years you want to age the bourbon and yeah. And then Enjoy. you bottle it. Yeah. yeah. So, so do you have a favorite bourbon now that you made it? <laughs> you know, I don't. It's funny. Uh, as I said, I was a beer drinker. And, and I think the main thing I learned being in the bourbon industry is I have no business drinking bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did get to enjoy uh, geez, more, more bourbons than I could possibly name. If I was to throw out my favorite, actually, one of my favorites was one that company made. Now, the company I worked for at the time had no brands of its own. It was a also a contract producer, um, and one of the businesses at that time that they were supporting was Bullet. So we made Bullet Rye, and that was absolutely one of my favorites. No kidding. Yep. So you know, in 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 making bourbon, and what I've learned in just talking to people over the years. You know that that's a long time. If you're aging something mm -hmm. three years, five years, six, eight years before you make your money back, there's a long time. So that's right. Did and, and a lot of those those distiller those uh, distilleries also made some clear liquors for the fact that those they can make and sell right away, and they could you know turn some profits so they could you know survive into the five, six, eight years of the aging process of some of the the brown. Right. The yep. brown alcohol. Did you guys only make brown? So no, that's really interesting. What you said is exactly right. And a lot of your craft brewers will make a vodka or a gin um, for that immediate return. Great way to approach the business while you're kind of funding your bourbon making as well. This place did that as well. But the reason for that was because it was a site for Seagram's that made all the components for Seagram's Seven Crown, which includes um, white ingredients. So um, basically pure grain alcohol. And so it was set up to make that variety of products. And then after Seagram's went kaput, it was owned by several different companies that then made, instead of making those for a single product, split them out and they were different products that they sold to other companies, you know, as a vodka. Um, introduce the gin making and then the bourbon separately. A way to, to keep cash flow going and keep yeah. your business thriving while you're waiting for, for obviously for the aged uh, brown to, uh, to do its thing. Yep, exactly. So, you know, Jim, one of the big key 
words in any industry, and you obviously, in in being a contributor to Forbes and a writer and having a podcast on industry now, is we're all hearing about supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. And I know you and I had a conversation about that recently. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know, can you give us an overview on how the supply chain differences can be from one industry to another and how you had to deal with some of that during your career, whether it was in the chemical industry, in the paint industry, the food industry, mm-hmm. the, the, the ingredient industry, the fi- finished food industry, or the alcohol industry. Yeah. Yeah. Supply chain um, is sometimes a, a good term, but it kind of implies this linear path. And I prefer supply network because, you know, number one, even for a single uh, ingredient or, or material, you could have multiple suppliers in multiple different places. You might only be using one or you might be using multiple ones at a time to try to get the best price or to, um, you know, make your supply situation more resilient. And so what I like to look at it less as a chain and more as a plate of spaghetti because it's this intertwining morass of different things going different places and you know when it's well designed all coming together to make that final product and yeah so huge differences from business to business and industry to industry think about that chemical world you know a lot of those companies are vertically integrated and so you might have chemical company that's sourcing its uh, hydrocarbons and then doing all the different steps itself through the process to get even to final products. Whereas, you know, like at General Mills, we had um, different suppliers all over the world and those suppliers are coming together at a specific General Mills site. We don't own any of those suppliers. It's all outside firms that are uh, selling to us and then we're producing that final product and then shipping it on to our customers, which are actually the retailers and then our consumers who are their customers who buy the things at the grocery stores. And so when we talk about supply chain as this kind of, I don't know, um, common thing, it's, it's not common at all. It looks different everywhere you go, as you know yourself, very different piece for what you guys too, do too. And so that to me is one of the big challenges in understanding some of the current difficulties is you know, what is it that's hitting any given business and what's the root cause? And I think the unusual thing right now is you have these crunches in multiple places all at the same time. So it's hitting a lot more suppliers. You know, think about like the oil crunch in the 1970s. It was only oil and it had impact beyond that because prices were crazy, but it wasn't impacting other businesses directly. We're now, you know, heck, I ordered a pool table in March. It's only now found out today it's, it's coming for delivery. So this stuff's just nuts with the, the delays and the difficulties in getting materials. And I think you can probably consider yourself lucky that it was oh, only only six, eight months. I know, that's right. We're, a, a we're couple talking years, about whether we'd ever get it. A couple of years ago, you would have probably said, what do you mean eight months? I want this right. thing in under eight weeks and, yep. and you know, not eight months. And, and you know, we're hearing on TV so you're the layman out there and you're not in manufacturing like you are, Jim. 
that, oh, supply chain and everyone thinks it's the ports and it's not enough trains or not, you know, the ships are stuck out there. That's kind of getting toward the end user part of it. But yeah. there's a whole nother supply chain, like you said, the, the the plate of spaghetti that goes into the manufacturing before a finished product is even being made. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, think about the, the chip situation that's gotten so much uh, airplay, especially as it impacts, you know, my home state's world with the auto industry. And, and that's a whole other set of suppliers and producers that are impacted before you ever think about making a car, right? The, little tiny chips, one little rounding error on what the whole car is, but it's literally holding up the whole production of, of cars for America. It might as well be a tire shortage where you can't put the tires on them because that little chip is holding it up just like any other component that literally you have to have in order yeah. for that vehicle. And I mean, it, it's it's crazy because you think of the automotive industry or you think of uh, maybe the food industry. I know our industry, uh, yeah. we've had to think way ahead and, and place purchase orders a year in advance for raw right. materials to make sure we have them because you can't make something if you don't have all your raw materials. Yeah. Uh, and, and right now there's, there's labor shortages. So I think that's impacting everybody oh, yeah. and and uh, you've been in that your whole career obviously really? uh, what would you say jim is your favorite part of being involved in this manufacturing industry as a whole and you get to touch so many people now with your writing right. and with your podcast what what's your favorite part of this whole thing um, my favorite thing is i just treasure the people who are in this world, because as I have taken to saying, you know, unlike so many other businesses in manufacturing, there's no hiding. You're either making a product that you're providing to someone when they need it at a price that's good for them and that makes you a profit or you're going out of business. And, you know, not to disparage anyone in the rest of the world, but that to me, puts this uh, kind of special burden on people where they have to deliver the goods and there's no fooling. You're either delivering the goods or you're not. And, and so, you know, as I've spent all these years in manufacturing and been in situations where, you know, things got difficult or we needed to do something fast that was unexpected and you just see people who will step up and just do anything it takes to get the job done and to get those products made and out to their customers and keep you know everyone along the way happy um it's just a special group of people that it's just been my absolute honor to be part of oh that's that is absolutely awesome and and People are what makes it go. I have to agree with you. People are what make it happen. And I know you and I are huge advocates of American manufacturing. We look right. at your your whole history and everything was in American manufacturing. I know it's important to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and my hope is that one of the silver linings with all the difficulties, both with COVID and with the, um, you know, somewhat related and somewhat not supply chain situation is that we'll have a uh, an honest reckoning around, geez, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to send so much of our production overseas all these years and bring some of this back. I'm not saying we never buy from anyone overseas. I believe in uh, trade with other countries and I believe in the power that that brings to lift 
other nations that haven't been as fortunate as the US and, and bring them up in the economic standing. But at the same time, to, to bankrupt our small towns and to just destroy whole cultures because you're chasing this absolute bottom dollar price out there in the world market. And then you suddenly find out, yeah, I've stretched it way too thin and made it so tenuous that all of a sudden my business is at risk because something bad happened. Wouldn't it? It wouldn't have gone that way if we kept a good chunk of that on our shores. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you knew that that was coming from me. So, <laughs> right. You know, Jim, you had some awesome positions working in industry and working multiple different levels of, of manufacturing and, and industry making things. Yep. How, how did those positions align you or set you up for success to now work with Forbes? I mean, come on, Forbes is a big deal when it comes to, to industry and it comes to business and, and references for all of us who are out in business. And now you're a contributing writer about industry and manufacturing to it. How did those jobs set you up for success there? So my whole career of doing all that stuff is what gave me the expertise and the credibility and, and the, the broad scope of knowledge to you know, be able to write about the things and, and write about what are sometimes some difficult topics and put it into a, a message that's more broadly understandable by, you know, it's what I'm writing for is the general business community, not the manufacturing community. And so non-specialists understanding what I'm writing about, regardless of the difficulty of the topic. Um, obviously, I had some great education years ago in, in uh, writing, and I've always been a writer, just never pursuing it professionally. I've written for internal company publications, for trade journals, for all kinds of different things. And I always say the Forbes thing was entirely the hand of God. It wasn't anything that I necessarily targeted as this is something I want to do someday. It was you know, I got big on LinkedIn with just being an advocate um, from my own experience for manufacturing and kind of putting out there what uh, my views were. And one day I get on LinkedIn and one of my contacts shared a uh, post from one of his contacts saying, I need someone to write magazine length articles about manufacturing. I thought, well, I can do that, right? So I sent the woman a note and <laughs> she emailed me back within an hour and she said, I've looked at your stuff on LinkedIn and it looks fabulous to me. So I'm copying so-and-so at Forbes and you two take it from here. And my immediate thought was, well, okay, Forbes, that's not happening. There's no way. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of a big, Jim, you're a big deal. <laughs> well, it was funny because before I could even shoot off a note to the contact that she had copied, I got a note from her and she's my editor now. And uh, she said, okay, you know, I looked at the stuff you have, but get me some samples you know, that are more, you know, along the lines of the specific kind of article we're talking about. So I took some of the trade journal pieces I'd written a few years ago and sent those off and we got on the phone and it was within a week or two, you know, we're on the phone and she says, yeah, everything looks great. I'm sending you a contract. And I remember walking in the house that night and talking to my wife, I think I'm going to be writing for Forbes. <laughs> still just not really getting through until that contract actually showed up and was signed. And yeah, three years ago. And 
it's uh, 200 plus articles along the way. And here we are today. Well, you just stole my thunder because that was my next question. <laughs> 200 articles on your third anniversary yep. be, being a Forbes contributor. Congratulations, first Thank of you. all, on that. That is pretty cool. But what, tell us, I mean, Forbes contributor, tell us what that really entitles, what that means. Well, so what it means is I am working in a specific business area providing content to Forbes. So I'm kind of an independent contractor who is um, under contract to Forbes to supply a certain number of articles every month, you know, of a certain length. And there's obviously, you know, all the, the writer's guides and editorial um, standards that were shared up front. And yeah, so it's just providing them content from my own area of expertise, but again, targeting that general business uh, reader that, that they uh, have as their customer. So give us an example of some of the companies that, that you have covered. And then with those companies, we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the topics. Yep. Well, of course, you know, two of my favorites were Duluth Pack and Spring Creek Manufacturing. Oh boy, <laughs> flattery will get you everywhere around here. <laughs> and we should, we should talk about those two for sure. But, you know, to tee that up initially, go to your, uh, the point of your question, it's been everything from, uh, you know, one of our common friends is the folks over at Stormy Cromer. They were one of my earliest articles and it was because, you know, they, they're right there in my hometown of Ironwood, but knowing the story that the Jackwards had, you know, the, the fabric shop that goes back, you know, into the mid 1900s and then coming through with Bob Jackwart building that into this more global business and doing all kinds of crazy stuff in fabrics and then getting the opportunity to buy the Stormy Cromer name and bring that product back from the brink, which is a story you've experienced personally as well. You know, that to me is just one of the, the kind of quintessential tales of what American manufacturers do is, you know, um, find that opportunity and put in the hard work and get a good team and deliver the goods. So it's little companies like what, Bob and Gina have there in Ironwood, all the way up to, I mean, I went out and visited GM Defense a couple months ago and drove the infantry squad vehicle and wrote about them bringing back their defense arm because of the realization that, so they'd been in defense, you know, even going back to World War One and then got out of it in the early 2000s, brought it back because they, they said, you know, we see a problem in how defense supply works and we think we can help fix it. So it's both you know, providing a needed product to our, our war fighters, but it's also, geez, you know, we can't take forever and a day to develop these defense vehicles or products and then have them canceled at the last minute. Let's turn this around and get that development world um, accelerated and really focus it on delivering value at a, a good price and, you know, taking care of our people who are paying for that as well, you know, the, the taxpayers. So the taxpayer, give them right? all kinds of credit. Nice. And, and, and give us some of your favorite topics that you've, you've been able to. I know you love manufacturing and it gets right. you excited and you're an engineer. So you want to learn because we've had this discussion before that everywhere you go into, it's like, oh, that's new. And it's like a, a shiny 
a shiny light. You know, we got to go check this out. You're an engineer and you want to see how it works and all that. Yep. Tell us some of your, the, 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 if you would, the most fun you have had when you've dug into an article with a company on what they make and, and, and just some, some neat stories and experiences you've had that, that we as the regular person out here may never think about. Yeah. Well, so I'll give you a couple. One, definitely, um, you know, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, being a lifelong cyclist. And it was one that I thought, you know, these guys would be really cool to learn more about and cover. So I got in touch with the people at SRAM, the bicycle components manufacturer headquartered in Chicago. They make zip wheels. They make David brakes, Truvative components, in addition to their own SRAM drivetrain components, they own rock shocks, you know, things that people know about by themselves, but don't realize necessarily they're under this umbrella of these guys in Chicago. So I went, I rarely get to go visit the people I write about because number one, obviously it'd be a heck of a lot of travel, but number two, um, it just wouldn't make sense. You know, it's stuff I can easily cover from afar, but since they're not that far away, I went down to the headquarters in Chicago and met with those guys and learned all about how they'd come from, you know, this group of triathletes back in the 1980s who came up with a new way of shifting and um, tried to sell it into the road bike world and it didn't really take off. And then mountain biking came along and their grip shift just went nuts there. And then they grew both by, you know, growing their own business on that, adding their own products, but then buying these other companies. And it's just, phenomenal. So getting to dig into that hobby aspect, you know, the thing, like I said earlier, it's what got me into mechanical engineering and what got me into manufacturing was that love of bicycling and the, the mechanical aspects. So uh, yeah, learning all about what they do and how they do it and getting to ride with one of their guys on a like $11,000 Pinarello with electric electronic shifting along the lakeshore was of uh, Lake Michigan, that was pretty you, cool. You didn't, you didn't break it, did you? I did not. Thank okay. <laughs> no, I delivered it back in one piece. Thank God. Uh, so that one was really neat. You know, the other one, and it's actually related because we did a story with SRAM with these guys, but I've done a series of articles with Autodesk. So um, Autodesk, if you're not familiar, has all kinds of different design and scheduling tools. They started with their flagship product back in the 1980s called uh, AutoCAD, one of the earliest and today now the most successful uh, computer-aided design program out there. And I remember at my first job going for training on AutoCAD when we were going away from the guys in the on the drafting tables doing mechanical drawings by hand and finally coming into the computer world. Well, and in now, those days, pretty rudimentary back in yeah, those days, too. Yeah, that's how far back I go. Um, and now, yeah, the the things you can do, not just in bringing what was done back then into the computer, but now, you know, 3D design. And there's a thing called generative design where you don't even do the drawing. You put in parameters and it's an AI application that then generates you know thousands of different iterations and hands you like top five solutions to what you want to design and, and gives you that drawing automatically. Um, and so you know 
I did some work with them on um, stuff like uh, Hyundai is doing these super mobile off-road vehicles, like a combination of wheels and legs that they're designing. And so they're using auto, Autodesk tools for that. Uh, I did a thing on a company that they've that Autodesk invest, invested in called Factory OS, where they're doing um, modular construction. Not, you know, you think about what that typically means is like, you know, uh, trailer homes, but it's not that. It's doing things in a factory for construction that, that are then transported to a site and assembled. So, you know, you're you're industrializing part of the process and making it that much more efficient. So they did this series of articles um, with Autodesk and then stuff farther afield, like Leica Studios, the stop motion studio, they use Autodesk tools for scheduling and for design of puppets or whatever that they use to do their stop motion animation. Um, and so, yeah, stuff you'd never think that this company that came out of the industrial world would be doing. And then I wrapped it up just a couple of weeks ago with an article about Autodesk proper and kind of where they've been and where they see their business going. Wow, that's fascinating when you think about fun. the artificial intelligence and how you just put in the parameters and it starts spitting out designs yep. for maybe thousands of designs and you're saying, but I want the five best ones and yeah. the artificial intelligence is going to figure that out for you. That is crazy. Well, and the other cool thing too, you know, one area that I've written quite a bit about is 3D printing. And so you can also input what your production method is going to be or methods. And what the tie back to SRAM was is Autodesk and SRAM partnered up to reimagine the bicycle crank arm. So that arm that's on the axle down at the bottom that, you know, comes out and then goes down to your pedal and you turn that to turn the, the chain. Um, that's a piece that no one's really ever put a lot of work into, you know, they've certainly done some lightweighting, taking material out of it, but they put that through generative design and came up with these just crazy crank arm designs. So like one that looks like a lattice, one that looks like a, a structural truss and just stuff that you couldn't even have made years ago. Some of it's 3D printing, some of it's advanced CNC, um, computer as numerical control machining. That's a, that's a question I have, Jim, is, is they can take it from that design then and, put, and plug it into a 3D printer and make their first rendition? Yep, yep. Wow. Yeah, yeah. so what the computer hands you as the design, it's a file that can go straight to either a 3D printer or even uh, a CNC machine, and it just makes the part. So you can put in parameters such as the strength parameters you feel you need so that it doesn't start making things too lightweight that are go going to break or have right. a right. failure. Yeah. Think about the crank arm. Obviously, it's got to be able to take the load that you're putting on it with your legs. It has to be able to handle like shocks to itself. Like you, especially mountain biking, you run into a bigger rock with your pedal. The crank arm has to handle that load. So you put those loads in. It has size limitations. You don't want it hitting your ankle. And so you put those size limitations in. Sometimes it's material limitations. Um, again, method of production, all of that goes in. And yeah, then the computer does its work and gives you options that solve your problem. 
Why didn't we think of that, right? <laughs> I'm just a mechanical engineer. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a heck of a good writer because you have almost a million page views at three years of your posted articles. Yeah. And and what what kind of stress as you go and now you've you have 200 plus articles, a million page views, three years under your belt. How do you keep creative and how stressful is it to find new and interesting topics to write about? Well, that was actually one of the first things I worried about going into it is, geez, how am I going to come up with ideas to keep this going over time? What I found out very quickly, though, is there are um, people professional, uh, professionally uh, focused on that. So PR people that I'm sure you work with as well. Um, who are out there kind of beating the bushes to get their products, their companies' publicity. And so I get pitches from PR people all the time. And those, I mean, it's phenomenal because it's, you know, 10 times what I could ever write about. Um, I don't even want to tell you how my inbox suffers from all that. But, sure. um, but you know, that's great. And, and the cool thing about that is I get ideas for things I never would have thought about. I mean... Who would know that Hyundai's doing that crazy vehicle with Autodesk? Um, so that came from one of those folks. But, you know, that being said, I still really love the ones where it's kind of me thinking, geez, what would be a cool story um, and getting with folks myself. So a good example there is my story about um, Zamboni. So the ice resurfacing machine, which, you know, anyone from our part of the world is very familiar with. Uh, a friend of mine on LinkedIn posted something about the history of the founder of Zamboni. And I looked at that and thought, well, that would be really cool. And I actually commented on LinkedIn and geez, I had to write about these folks. There was a PR guy in LA who I've worked with on other stories, commented and said, you know, if you're really interested, I can help you out. And we touched base on email. He says, I don't wrap them but I think you would do phenomenal work telling their story. So if you really want to get a hold of them, I can put you in touch with the family. And, and so you did. He did. And um, I mean, they had me talk to people all over the world. I don't know how many employees of Zamboni company I talked to, but yeah, that will always be one of my favorite stories because they're just such fantastic people. And they've got this product that, you know, if you don't know the history, you should read my article because it literally changed, you know, the game of hockey. It changed the whole ice sports world. And it was just this enormous savings of labor and difficulty and just made, made life ever so much easier for so many people. And here they are still doing what they do years later, going into electrification, keeping up with the modern world, but it's still Zamboni. You know, I do have to say, though, if you and I'm a hockey guy and played for a lot of years and, and still am, am go to go to games. But you got to be able to smell some of that propane when you go in the arena right? <laughs> <laughs> from the Zamboni. <laughs> right. you know, it's, it, it, that's an interesting story, because in a past life of mine, um, one of our offices in Florida, the the office manager, her maiden name was Zamboni. Ah, yep. And uh, and when I first met her, 
you know, she's like, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Northern Minnesota. And she goes, well, you've obviously heard of a Zamboni. And I said, <laughs> oh, yes, they're pretty much on every, just about every street corner, right? Because we have a lot of hockey arenas and ice rinks. Yep. And, and uh, she said, well, that is my, I think it was her great, great grandpa. Wow, very cool. That uh, founded Zamboni. So there's yep. a fun one. So after nearly a million views, Three years, 200 articles for Forbes. Jim starts a podcast. Yeah, more than a podcast. It's a YouTube show and podcast. So I do video and audio. He does. As you know. He does. Because I was, <laughs> you were on I was lucky enough to be a guest <laughs> on it. And we just do the audio part because people don't want to look at me too much here. And uh, so you can stick with that part. And then they on, on that one episode, they can block part of the screen out. <laughs> But, but you do this podcast and this YouTube, Manufacturing Talks, on air with Jim Vanosky. Tell yep. us all about that, how you got that started, why you got that started, and then and where it's going. Yeah, so a friend of mine suggested I look at it just as another you know, means of sharing all these cool stories that I get to come across in the manufacturing world. And as I got just kind of casually digging into it after he suggested it, I learned pretty quickly there's really not much out there at all for manufacturing in the podcast world. And obviously the podcast world has just gone gangbusters and there's endless podcasts about everything. Not to say there aren't some really great ones out there. And and I, I swear I find a new one every day. So it wasn't just me coming with the idea to fill the gap, but I thought, you know what? Even with the ones I can find, there's none that focuses just on what I do with my Forbes work, which is just telling the stories that I think are super cool and digging into, you know, what is this business about? How did it come about? Who, who did the hard work and got it going? And then, you know, where is it today and where is it headed? And that's what I do. I just really focus on the same stuff and talk to people like you who are out there in the trenches um, making it happen in the manufacturing world. So who are some of the, the companies that you have had on there so far on your podcast and YouTube? So, you know, the first one, the guy I think is just the quintessential example of what can uh, happen magically in, in the manufacturing world, a guy named Titan Gilroy, who, uh, you know, he grew up homeless. He was, um, you know, kind of on a bad path himself, uh, spent some time in jail. And at one point, kind of at the same time, discovered CNC machining, which we talked about earlier, you know, computerized machining and God. And and those two things together set him on a path, number one, to establish his own company. And after a few difficult uh, ups and downs, made it successful. He's down in uh, Flower Mountain, Texas now with a big, huge CNC ma- machine shop. He wound up doing a, a YouTube, um, I'm sorry, he did a, a reality show for a while of his own, all about CNC machining. He established a CNC machining academy where you can get almost free training to be a CNC programmer, machinist. And so he's out there helping, you know, Young folks go into the trades, into a lucrative career, continues to provide jobs with his company, 
and does this the most phenomenal machining YouTube videos now. You should go out and check out his videos. I wrote it down. Um, yeah, Titan Gilroy was a phenomenal guest. He was my first one, but you know, I had Bob Jackward on uh, at Stormy Cromer, talked about his story. Uh, my next one is a guy named Dean Wegner, West Point grad, former Army chopper pilot, and then realized, yeah, there's you know this wreck of an industry of American apparel that we ought to really be focusing on. So authentically American came about, and he's out there bringing apparel business back to our shores. Folks, today we have Jim Vanosky, a Forbes contributor who has almost a million page views in three years and 200 articles for Forbes, podcast and YouTube. And it's all about industry and manufacturing. And so Jim, we're going to move into this segment that we call the Pact questions. So we've talked all about okay. you and your, 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 your life getting to where you are now and working in industry and manufacturing and getting into uh, being a writer with Forbes and a podcaster and world renowned. Now we're going to get some packed questions that if personal questions, we're going personal. Okay, fair enough. If you could have dinner with anyone in history, who would it be? That's a good question. I think Henry Ford. I would I would love to hear straight from the guy's own mouth how he made the whole the the mass production of automobiles back when automobiles were just coming around and brought that to Americans as something, you know, the average Joe could own uh, automated production back when it was just automating the movement of the thing so workers could do their bit and have it move along and not have to manually move cars around. Yeah, so the, the assembly line, learn all about it straight from Henry Ford. That's pretty, that would be pretty cool if you could do a <laughs> podcast on Henry yeah, Ford. Yeah, I want him on my show. <laughs> exactly. I think you would, uh, you'd have a lot of listeners. Uh -huh. uh, favorite movie of all time? A Bridge Too Far, World War II movie. Why? So I'm also a huge World War II buff, and that was one of the earliest movies I saw. It was made back in the 1960s. It's based on a, an actual history book by a, name, a guy named Cornelius Ryan. And I've read everything Cornelius Ryan wrote since I watched that movie. Um, and it's interestingly about a failed operation, um, one the Allies lost called Market Garden, Operation Market Garden in um, Holland, where the British General Montgomery thought he could drive his way into the northern part of Germany in um, the summer of 1944 and bring the war to an early end. And unfortunately, it didn't work out. And uh, we wound up kind of back at the start after some pretty serious losses. But, you know, it's really interesting because you can always watch the triumphant stories, but to watch one where, you know, we gave it our best effort and still came up short, even though we're the allies and we know in the end we won. It's just, I think, a really good educational lesson. Awesome. Bucket list activity that you have not been able to do yet. Uh, grand Western trip with my two teenage sons. 
So as I mentioned, you know, um, I was from Ireland, but my, my mom actually grew up in the high desert in Southern Oregon. So we would be out there every other summer when I was growing up and I've seen all the Western states. So we'd make a point of visiting all the national parks and things. I mentioned my dad was in the US Forest Service, so big outdoorsman. And so I've seen all that personally, they haven't. And I wanna do that. And actually thinking about it for not next summer, but the one after before my older son goes off to college. Time is ticking. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll get it. Per we'll get it definitely scheduled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And your favorite meal, Jim? Well, I'm from Ironwood, Michigan, and I'm actually having it tonight, and that would be pasties. Oh, <laughs> we have to describe that, right? Meat and, meat and potato pies, basically. And you know what? I just had those at deer camp about two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And we actually heated them over a, a water bath as we on the wood stove before we went out for the afternoon ah, sit yep. so that they would burn. Yep, pasties for dinner. Boy, they're filling. If you don't know what a pasty is, I'm sorry, folks. You're just going to have to look it up. Google oh, up yeah. what a pasty is. And you, you haven't had any Midwest food till you've had a pasty. <laughs> All right. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking of that now. Oh, <laughs> You're off to the pasty shop after we're done here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Folks, today we've had Jim Vanosky, and not only is he a contributor to Forbes magazine and for three years written 200 articles, over 1 million page views, but he's been in manufacturing and, and industry for 30 years and is just a wealth of knowledge, has started a podcast about the name of it is Manufacturing Talks. Jim, where can people find you on that? Yep, on YouTube. Just search for Manufacturing Talks, you'll find it. And then um, we're on most of the popular podcast outlets. Just look us up and um, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll be happy to uh, send you directly uh, our YouTube link and RSS feeds or you know, watch for that next episode. I'll be posting it there next Tuesday morning. Perfect. Folks, this has been Jim Vanosky. This is the leader of the PAC podcast. And until next time, unplug from the indoors and recharge in the outdoors. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leader of the Pack. Don't forget to rate this podcast. And we would certainly be grateful if you'd give us five stars. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow Duluth Pack on social media at Duluth Pack. And shop online at DuluthPack.com. Don't forget to support American jobs and buy American made.